1: There is plenty to talk about here in Toronto. It looks like the great resignation has hit City Council, and there's not exactly a stampede to snag one of those $120,000 jobs. With the deadline for registering just a week away, only a third as many candidates are throwing their hats in the ring compared to 2018. And as a few days ago, the number of candidates eighty four versus two hundred and forty two in the last election, and we 'll check in on the brewing war between cyclists and pedestrians in High Park with the cyclists crying police harassment and it 's not just cyclists that threaten pedestrians, three pedestrians were hit by cars on one morning yesterday morning alone uh, What does that say for all those? vision zero claims and the strong mayor legislation has been tabled as expected what do you think 416-360-0740 toll free 1-866-740-4740
0: and now it's time to tune into the town
1: and now I'd like to welcome Lauren O'Neill, Senior News Editor of TO, Councillor James Pasternak, Ward 6, York Centre, and Councillor Brad Bradford, Ward 19, Beaches, East York. Hello, everyone. Hi. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? We're doing good. So uh, let's start with uh, the city councillors we're talking to. So what do you make of uh, the large volume of resignations and the fact that there aren't that many candidates, Brad?
2: Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I I think if you look at Toronto City Council over the past four to five years, uh, we really have seen more change um, than in the decades that preceded it. And, uh, you know, that goes back from the reduction of seats from 44 to 25 uh, now we have the new strong mayor legislation, uh, and I, I think it just reflects sort of the changing dynamic in a big city. Um, the The job is not an easy one, it's very demanding. Um, I think folks are, are focused on how they create impact, and politics is certainly one way to do that, but there's lots of other opportunities and avenues to create uh, an impact and make a difference in our city, and, and folks are exploring that. Obviously, our democracy is strongest when it's a competition of ideas, uh, so we want folks to to step up and get their name on the ballot, and they still have a week to do that. There's lots of campaigning left to do, um, but it is interesting that uh, we're seeing folks step away. Uh, I think it's different in every context, and if you listen to the councilors and who are who are leaving, um, their reasons are quite varied—from you know more time with their family to some of the mental health impacts—and uh, and I think it's it's different for every person. But I am hopeful that more people get their names on the ballot and register in in the week ahead. And uh, again, it's all about a competition of ideas at City Hall.
1: Okay, before I move on to James, Brad, do you think it's a good job? Do you enjoy your job? I,
2: well, I don't, I don't think everybody enjoys every minute and every moment of every job. Of uh, any job, yeah. Yeah, of any job, but I will say it's been incredibly rewarding for me. Uh, Beaches East York in particular is a very engaged constituency, uh, and whether I'm getting lit up on Facebook, or we're having a community meeting, or we're, we're getting together in a park to, to discuss our hopes and aspirations for what we'd like to see there, whether we're doing housing or bike lanes, all this sort of stuff, change generates conversation. It generates a wide range of views and opinions, um, but it really is about the future of our community and the future of the city. Uh, I'm just very blessed to be in a position where I can help uh, support and lead that change, and uh, it's very rewarding. Like I said, there's a lot of ways to make an impact, uh, but certainly local government is, uh, is among one of the best opportunities.
1: James Pasternak, do you still like your job?
3: Yeah, I, it's a truly an honour to serve the, uh, the neighbourhoods and community of York Centre Downsview uh, my team is, is a very positive team that helps people every day. It's a lifelong dream to serve as a, an elected official. It was very tough this past uh, term because of, uh, the shrinkage of council by 19 seats and the doubling of the wards. Counselors now have over 100,000 people to service. I think it's unsustainable. I think a few counselors are leaving because it's just become a meat grinder. You've got a couple of counselors there who are veterans who have been their 30 years or just slightly less, and it's, it's their time to sort of move on. And then you've got a, another group, as Brad mentioned, of young families. I mean, they have kids uh, well under 10, and, and, and they're missing out. Uh, by being out so many nights a week and weekends, that uh, they're missing out on the raising of their families, and they've decided uh, to, to leave uh, council and, and focus more on family. So it's a tough job. Uh, and but it's an extremely rewarding job, and it's been an honor to serve,
1: Lauren. So there's this push pull. So it is a harder job than when there were many more wards. Uh, but on the one hand, you have that it's it's a touch, tough job. Uh, there are people who are saying, "Gee, you know, this is concerning because it's not it's people leaving with a lot of experience and." I'm pretty sure it takes quite a while before you even figure out where the washrooms are. Uh, but on the other hand, it's an opportunity for renewal. So how do you see it? You know, I I see this as part of almost the larger great resignation we've been
4: seeing post-pandemic in the society. It, it's been a challenging term for counselors for sure. Not, not just with all of the change and gaining more constituents by default, the shrinking of the... Um, the number of seats, but also like we're in a state of emergency rolling lockdowns. Like these are all really stressful things. And so generally, you know, the unemployment rate has gone like down or not, not as many people are working as before. And you see a lot of people maybe reevaluate their priorities and want to spend more time with their family, realize life is short. I mean, that would be part of it. Um, And the other part might just be that, you know, it's gotten too challenging. It's it's too it's too stressful with that many people and maybe they could consider having more seats on council again. I don't know if that would be the solution. I know councillors Bradford and Pasternak know the ins and outs of this a lot better than I do, but it's, yeah, it's, it's concerning to see. And I do have a question for all of you. Like, what what does one need to do to apply? What qualifies a person to be a city councillor? Can anyone just apply?
3: Well, Sure, entry is actually easier at the municipal level than at the other levels of government, where there's party machinery that uh, forces you to either win a nomination or, or be appointed by the party leader. Um, for city council, it's it's usually uh, residency in Toronto, or hundred dollars, uh, no criminal record, um, and uh, and you're good to go. Um, Bar is far- low.
4: Yeah, I mean, anyone listening out there who has an interest. in Yeah, so in politics.
3: I mean, we really encourage people to put their names forward for public service in in, in this way. We want we want a very vibrant, uh, vibrant uh, democracy with with a lot of sharing of ideas. Um, so when it comes to uh, entry into into elected office, the municipal level, and of course, there's other other positions as well. There's the school boards. Uh, there's four school boards in Toronto. Uh, which are also looking for candidates and and uh, entry there is uh, is about the is is, is the same and uh, if someone is thinking of public office uh, that is that is the easiest route to do
1: uh, let me ask you this okay so the bar is low for entry but how much money do you need and and is it an impediment that if you campaign and you lose so you're still on the hook for the cash personally aren't you
3: who would like to answer that one? <laughs> um, there, well, I, I'll just jump in very quickly. First of all, you, you do have to have the ability to raise money, and there there are restrictions and rules governing using your own money. So you're not on the hook. You're not really technically allowed to carry a deficit campaign. Uh, so, but deficits can be can be wiped out uh, after in the post election period, but it's very difficult to do unless you win. Uh, so raising money is, is, tricky. We have something called the rebate program, where if someone gives a donation, you do get, uh, you tax get up 50, 50 to uh, 75% of it back. It's not tax credit. Um, but at the, obviously at the uh, provincial and federal levels, you, the income tax act is very favorable to political donations. And you have a party machinery that's constantly trying to raise money. So raising money as an individual is a challenge. Um, and, uh, and unless you raise that money, you're gonna have a tough time winning.
2: Yeah, um, Libby, I would, I would just add to that. You know, when I ran in 2018, that was my first time running for, for office. And, uh, you know, I was a policy guy. I worked in the chief planner's office at the city of Toronto. So very new and perhaps naive to politics, wasn't aware of, uh, many of the things I've learned over the past four years. But I, I would encourage folks who are thinking about it and you still got time, uh, a week or, or so to get on the ballot. Uh, you know, the, the fundraising hurdles are, are there. Um, but I would say even more important then fundraising, uh, we ran a very grassroots campaign that was very volunteer oriented and folks that just had a, a set of shared values and aspirations for our community and for Toronto. And, uh, you know, the pathway to victory, you know, in our case was, was going to 50,000 doors over the course of, uh, the five month campaign and, and grinding it out and having those conversations on the doorstep in the apartment hallways, um, you know, in the public parks and talking to people about what matters to them and, and listening and taking that feedback and, and and So while dollars are really important because you got to be able to, you know, print the literature to, to leave at the door, and uh, and it certainly helps make a campaign run smoother, um, most of our, our donations kind of came in on the back half of the campaign because it was a crowded and contested race. And, you know, it, it wasn't until the, the later weeks of the campaign where, where that stuff started to go. But you can make a lot of inroads and connect with a lot of people just by going to the doors and uh, building up volunteers and, and having folks get out there and And listen to folks in the community. So volunteers and and putting in the time and the effort and pounding the pavement, that's a really, really big part of it uh, in a grassroots campaign. And then the money will come.
1: Well, you know what? I mean, you have to have people who are willing to take the time to work for you. And there's this other thing where it's almost impossible to defeat an incumbent. Uh, And, you know, people are not that engaged in municipal politics. The voter turnout is low, uh, so it's difficult, and it's difficult even if you have name recognition. You know who we should have been talking to about this is our own Liz West. She ran for council once. Oh, no way. <laughs> That's right. and uh, she did, maybe. She did not win, even though she had from uh, We Were Colleagues at City TV. She had quite the name recognition, but it, it didn't work out. And I remember uh, one of our very good camera people was her campaign manager. was quite a while ago. Uh, but it, it's it's not an easy thing. So, what about this? You know, this kind of, uh, I guess, uh, intransigency, immovability of of the incumbents. I mean, now that you're elected, James, is, does that mean like it's it's almost impossible to unseat you?
3: Well, no, nothing's <laughs> nothing's impossible. I go back to 2010 when I was one of 14 uh, councillors uh, who came onto council. Uh, newbies they called us uh, fresh faces and of those 14 only three are going to be on the ballot uh, this this time around so 12 years later 11 have moved on to other things I believe one of them is the premier <laughs> um, so incumbents do lose uh, it's uh, when in back to 2010 six incumbents lost uh, that uh, that election cycle it is it is hard to, to defeat an incumbent but uh, you know, because because someone has a track record and they developed uh, relationships within within the ward boundaries, but uh, incumbents uh, have fallen, and it, and and with a a well-funded grassroots campaign, as as Brad uh, mentioned, uh, in, incumbents could have a big race on their hands. Uh,
1: Lauren, you're into politics. You are in a community of people who are into municipal politics. Do are any of them thinking of running? Is this something that you think is a good idea for any of you, or is it? Do you <laughs> shake your heads and say, "No, never, not me"?
4: I think at this time, a it's a little late in the game, um, like counselor- well for this election, oh, for this general. election. Um, but yeah, no, I don't really see anyone who's jumping to get into municipal politics right now. And I think just seeing so many councillors who are giving their seats up, it it, it kind of spooks people in that way as well. It's like, oh, well, maybe this isn't such a great job if we have this huge resignation of people who don't want to do it anymore um but perhaps next time around you know there will be some some you know snappy young candidates who try their hand at it but yeah i I mean this time around like Councillor bradford was saying it's like a five-month campaign there's only a short amount of time left so for anyone to come in and especially to unseat an incumbent in any award would be really really tough at this point uh I mean, I I think a lot of people my age don't even know the difference between who we're voting for on the municipal and federal and provincial level. Like when it comes to MPPs and MPs and counselors, we just see so many names and so many flyers. Like I've talked to people and I'm like, well, who's your city counselor? And they're like, I don't know. I think it's like, and they'll name like an MP, like that's not (laughs) your city counselor. (laughs) There's just so much information coming all the time at people.
1: Well, and and speaking of uh, the demographics of this, I'm just going to give uh, my weekend show Zoomer Weekend Review a plug. Uh, so um, I was talking to David Crombie about this, and he thinks that maybe running for council could be a good or being on council a good second career for Zoomers. So uh, I'll have more on that on the weekend, on Sunday at noon. And now let's move on to another hot topic. And that is like the war between cyclists and pedestrians and cops. That is among the three of them. So the cyclists, uh, that, and we've seen pictures of them moving in a phalanx really quickly. And they're saying they're being harassed by cops. Now I, I just want to bring my husband's point of view. He is a monster cyclist, and he will go in the afternoon, sixty, eighty kilometers, sometimes even more. He's uh, not a young person; he's unbelievably fit. And his take on it, he said, he he's been at the you know the south end of High Park. There, he said, you can easily end up going forty or fifty kilometers an hour. And if any pedestrian gets in your way, you're going to take them down. So he thinks these cyclists are just being overly aggressive and entitled. So, <laughs> what do you think of that explanation, Brad Bradford?
2: Well, uh, you know, I uh, I ride a lot of bikes too, and, and folks might be aware of that. And um, you know, it's a it's a complicated issue. I I think a lot of us generally think about the propensity for harm. Um, and I'm not saying that a collision with a, with a cyclist or a pedestrian, um, is not a problem. Of course it is. Um, but when we have such limited enforcement, uh, tools available and, and, you know, you look at the, the injuries and pedestrians hit by vehicles, um, and, and the drivers of those vehicles just this week, um, there is a real, uh challenge here on the streets in Toronto and all big cities and conflicts of uses. So the enforcement side is one piece, but I think Fundamentally, all of this speaks to how we design our spaces, uh, our public parks and our roads and how we design them from a perspective to how do we make them safe for all users. So, High Park is a, is a popular cycling destination. Uh, your husband's probably ridden there and I've yeah. ridden there myself. Uh, and, and you ride around and, and you see a lot of folks on bikes, you see a lot of people in cars, and you see a lot of pedestrians. So we need to come up with a design solution and perhaps a programming solution that helps better mitigate uh, those challenges and conflicts between modes. And I will say, you know, I don't know every park in the city of Toronto. I think we have probably 1,500 or so. Um, but High Park is one of the only parks where you can actually drive into the center of the park. Um, a, a lot of places direct the parking they, towards they, the periphery. But they
1: limit that. I mean, there they,
2: are they, lots. They do limit that that. There are we have been piloting some programs where there are car free moments uh in and days in High Park, but it is a unique layout and I think that kinda goes back to the design piece. Um do you want roads for cars driving into the middle of this big spectacular park in High Park or do we want to make sure that folks have access to the parking but also recognize a lot of people are getting there on transit because it's on a subway or they're walking and how can we program that space better for pedestrians, cyclists and folks who are driving to the park as well yeah
1: but okay i've looked at the pictures and a lot of cyclists are wonderful including my husband and Brad Bradford, but the, some are extremely aggressive. Sometimes they ride kind of uh, in a phalanx across where mm. they, nobody else can use the roadway. There are a lot of cyclists who are extremely aggressive, you know, even against a car. They're kind of daring you. And, you know, it it, it looks to me that situation in High Park, they are just being extremely aggressive. It has come to a
4: head. I mean, this has been a problem for a while, according to local residents. I I just learned this term um, through Ben Spur at the Toronto Star. Mammals. Middle-aged men in lycra, <laughs> middle-aged men in lycra who speed down, treating the road like it's their own personal Tour de France. And I think that is the problem. There are lots of respectful cyclists, like you said, at High Park and elsewhere. But it's when these, you know, select few, and, and they're not just at High Park. I've encountered them on like the okay, Don they're Valley not trail. just middle-aged. Some of them are young. Some of them are young, and some, some of them are old. Are, <laughs> yeah, all 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 men in, in lycra with uh, the, the pointing. It's helmet. true,
1: you know. I haven't really seen aggressive women cyclists, even though a lot of great women cyclists. That's
4: true. I mean, when I'm cycling, the most aggressive I'll get is like, Hey, when
1: a car kind of (laughs) comes too
4: close. But I think the problem is that there's like, like the, like Councillor Bravo was saying, there's just so many uses of the road. So many people using the road in different ways. And we need to look at kind of how we change the infrastructure to support that. Because when high park was built, I don't think it was built with cars, pedestrians, rollerbladers, e-bikes, scooters,
1: all of these things in mind. Um, it, but, but in the meantime, is there a problem with ticketing these guys, these, what, what are they well, called, mammals? Uh, mammals. Mammals, yeah. these mammals who uh, are being really aggressive. James Pasternak, is there a problem with that? Well,
3: I mean, I think it's important to remember and point out that cyclists are a must abide by all our bio laws and provisions of the Highway Traffic Act. They're bound by those, and they've got to follow all the rules of the road. The other thing is to remember that um, you know we have an aging population, and we've got to be very respectful of, uh, of pedestrians uh, and residents who use uh, use our sidewalks and, uh, and, and and also have to share the road. I, I think there is a propensity to um, for some cyclists, small and I, I cycle, um, to sort of take this view of "Stop me if you can." And that they they are going to carve out a, a, a um, the middle of the road rather than rather than curb lanes. Yeah. So, um, but but at, at the same time, I worry that this is not a priority. Uh, that police resources are spread so thin, and that uh, you know we need we need our nine one one calls answered up in uh, York Centre Downsview on a timely basis.
1: Yeah, but I so don't we, think the guys. Uh, ticketing cyclists in the park uh, are the same ones answering your 911 calls that's uh, you know i don't well, think so
3: resources are resources I and mean, budgetary issues uh, i'm i'm told repeatedly that they can't answer uh, various calls uh, on a timely basis, because of budgeting and resources.
2: So and I would just add to James's point. He makes a good one there. It's it, you know that's that's Division 11, I believe, and it's not in either of our jurisdictions. But I'm sure that their inboxes and phone lines also get flooded with a lot of complaints and concerns about speeding traffic through side streets or speeding traffic in school zones. And so again, when we think about the the propensity for harm, and you know the the 2,000 pound vehicle that's speeding through a school zone doing 60, uh, and our kids are out there or seniors. Zone um, again, these vulnerable users. That, to my mind, is where we really in a in a world of limited and constrained resources. That is where we need to be directing those resources. And and you know, I think we're going to talk about it. But the 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 risk to pedestrians out here in the city of Toronto. We're doing a lot of work on it, but obviously we have a lot more work to do. And enforcement is a big part of it. So you know, cyclists get a bad rep, and and sometimes it's certainly deserved. And and when there's a clip on CP twenty four of a cyclist going past a pedestrian and telling them to go fly a kite, that doesn't help. And I actually take that message to the cycling community and I say, look, this is not helpful. This is not good behavior. And when we talk about take the lane, share the road, you know, we are required to follow the rules of the road. If we want to be treated as a vehicle on the road, then, you know, it's it's on all of us to, to try our best to follow that. But I do think the conversation of whataboutism is never really helpful because, you know, we literally issue tens of thousands of tickets in our automatic speed enforcement, tens of thousands of tickets uh, for red light uh, running infractions. That stuff happens on our streets. Um, you know, it's not just made up. We have the cameras and the tickets to prove it. And, you know, pedestrians, jaywalk. And so, like, there's a lot of folks who don't follow the letter of the law and our rules uh, on the road. And I think that's why, ultimately, the best solution is design and programmatic changes um, so that we can address that in a way that we get the kind of behavior on our roads that we want to see because they're built that way.
1: Yeah, okay. Um, though I bet that uh, that police division got a lot of complaints about High Park, and maybe that's why that happened. Uh, but before we wrap, th- oh, wrap things up, I'm going to take a call here from Sam in Toronto. Hi, Sam. Hello. How are you, Libby? Fine. How are you?
5: Thank you very much. I just want to make a small point. I think the, uh, this gentleman uh, made a good point. But based in resources, you know, when there is like mayhem of construction, it's like a war zone in Toronto, which is getting worse and worse. I don't see cops and police departments stopping, not once, all these dump trucks, like thousands of dump trucks in Toronto that create a lot of security issues and accidents. And, you know, they're rushing to the sites, you know, the uh, I don't, maybe there is a conflict of interest because they get paid for con- by construction companies to watch the sites I don't know, but they they're wasting their resources on cyclists. How many cyclists have killed people? How many dump trucks have killed people so
1: that's, that's a good line. Well, that's a good line. thanks for that Sam Thank you. okay um let us before we wrap things up move along to strong mayor. we've heard a lot of different things from different people. John Tory says he won't govern any differently. Uh the mayor of Ottawa doesn't think it's a good idea. So, uh James, uh how do you think of your job in terms of this? Do you have uh less of less say uh are you less happy because of this or more? Well, I would say that I'm uh, the whole thing's a bit puzzling. Uh a mayor of this
3: city, particularly this mayor, wins just about every single vote they they have a passion for or they want a policy pass so they they have uh those kinds of powers in place now to carry council on important public policy issues to the mayor um if this is a, an effort to um accelerate the building of housing i don't i don't really see how that's possible because much of the delays of housing uh are are actually have nothing to do with the mayor or council they're they're kind of structural uh, processes, appeal, judicial issues, uh, engineering issues that slow down uh, construction. The mayor's power, added power, would not accelerate the, the building of houses. The last point I would make before I let others chime in is I think this will create a more acrimonious uh, council setting where the mayor may use the veto, council may mobilize to try and uh, overrun it, um there, there will be tension between the council floor and the mayor. I think this mayor is very responsible with these powers, but we don't know uh, what the future will bring.
1: Brad, uh, w- what do you think about your job and your power, if we put it that way, in the light of this? Well, it's interesting, like uh,
2: the conversations of power. I, n- I never really think about that. I think about the pathways and the abilities to get things done. And you don't have to follow municipal government very closely to know that there's probably room for improvement in us delivering on the folks, uh, on the things that folks expect us to do. So I'm very open minded and I have been and will continue to be on any proposals that come forward to help improve local government service delivery for residents. Uh, you know.
1: What was that? Brad? I think we just lost Brad. No. Oh, dear. Oh, okay. Lauren? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um,
4: I mean, speaking of power, I think a lot of people are seeing this move toward the strong mayor system as simply Doug Ford trying to get more power over the city of Toronto again. Because the mayor will have the power to veto any council vote. If it conflicts with provincial priorities, which have not been defined yet, so I will have more of, I guess, an opinion on it when I see what these provincial priorities are. Um, but right now, a lot of people are saying, "Well, I mean, how do you become the mayor of Toronto without getting elected as the mayor of Toronto?" You know, just
1: yeah. But then on the other hand, we've got to remember the mayor of Toronto is elected with more votes than anyone in the country, including the prime minister or the premier.
4: Yeah, which is why it makes it kind of concerning to some people, I think, that will Ford just be able to kind of puppet the new mayor through this system? Like, I that's can't imagine. with the provincial priority. I mean, we'll see.
1: Okay. Is, is Brad there to say goodbye to him? Mm, I guess not. Uh, Brad, thanks very much for that. James, uh, last 20 seconds to you. What are you watching for in uh, the last day when people can register?
3: Well, look, I'm, I'm excited about this election campaign. It's a great opportunity to go to tens of thousands of doors and, and hear residents one-on-one. Obviously, a robust democracy requires people to put their names forward and run. And, uh, and while the first election outing for some may be frustrating, they, many people try a couple of times. So I'm looking forward to, to getting out there, knocking on the doors, and getting to uh, getting to hear what Torontonians have to say, so we can make the next term of council extremely successful.
1: I, I almost forgot to ask you: Is anyone running against you?
3: Yes, no, I do have a couple of people running against me. I take I take all competition very seriously. So we're out there already, knocking on doors and speaking to people. And 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 our our big challenge is we're really running against apathy because. Uh, the, the provincial turnout was very low. So we've got to get people involved, engaged, and, uh, and we've got to get them to the polls.
1: Okay, well, I am sure we will talk about this many times. Uh, Thank you so much, Brad Bradford, who we've lost, uh, James Pasternak, and Lauren O'Neill. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Libby. Okay, you're very
3: welcome, Libby. Take care. All the best.
1: Okay, all the best to you. We're taking a break. And when we come back, a historic election at Uniform, which is Canada's largest private sector union. We'll talk about that.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Oh, no. Fight Back with Libby Sneimer on Zoomer Radio. Oh, no.
1: Welcome back. Now we turn to an historic election at Canada's largest private sector union. Unifor has elected Lara Payne as its first woman national president. It comes as the organization is trying to recover from the Jerry Dias scandal. He resigned before it was revealed that he took a $50,000 kickback from a COVID test manufacturer for pushing their product. Well, yeah. So now I am joined by Dr. Rafael Gomez, an Associate Professor of Employment Relations at the University of Toronto. Hello, Dr. Gomez. Thanks for joining us.
6: No, it's my pleasure.
1: How significant is this?
6: The election. Well, um, it represents, I think, a shift that's been happening in the union movement for the past 20, maybe 30 years. Um, You know, I think maybe we still have a stereotype of the union member. Just conjure that up in your head. You think what? Blue collar, manufacturing, male, white. Uh, that's all changed. Uh, the, the typical union member now is more likely to be female than male by several percentage points, like a five percentage point difference. Like overall in Canada, we have about 30 percent of the workforce unionized. Of course, that splits in many different ways. But again, the one way it does split is, you know, women are now more likely to be union members than men.
1: Right. But I, I would guess, and, and please correct mm-hmm. me if I'm wrong, that the women would be very heavily represented in the healthcare unions sure. and in the civil service unions, which uh, is not Unifor.
6: Well, no, Unifor has entered that space because yeah. they're so big. Remember, Unifor is an amalgam, right? yeah. uh, a conglomerate, if you will, <laughs> of the uh, union movement. It's actually absorbed lots of workers that now have essentially become part of the what's called the broader public sector, you know, that sector that's yeah. basically funded, regulated by government. Uh, think about a lot of, uh, you know, services, social services that are kind of done by third parties. Those have increasingly become unionized, and that's where Unifor has seen its biggest growth. Um, by far, you know, the auto workers are still a huge piece of the Unifor um, puzzle and also the, the culture that spawned Unifor. But don't forget, the growth is not there. It's in services and what we might call the broader public sector. broader public sector in Canada now has 77% of the workforce unionized versus, this is crazy, 14% in the private sector.
1: Yep, yep. Uh, I don't know what that says about the future of the union movement, but... um... Yeah, it puts it into question
6: because that's almost a huge imbalance. Because if you think about it, the needs and interests Of all workers share a lot of commonalities, right? Decency, good pay, fairness, all of that. However, it's differently when you think about major projects that might create jobs in the private sector, but kind of stand against the norms or values of, say, a typical public sector worker. Think about energy projects that could generate huge numbers of good paying private sector jobs, but which might be opposed by the kind of value system that are Present in those public sector uh, workforces, right? So yes, yeah, it does create a division. It creates a bifurcation, an inequality, if you will, because if you have good protection, good paying jobs in one sector, and it's, it's there because of unionization, but it's all dominated by public sector, then you think about the resentment that could build up in private sector workers who don't see the same protections coming to them.
1: Well, I think the resentment is already there, quite frankly. Um, Final question to you, and that is, uh, could part of the election of a woman, the first ever woman, be that, uh, you know, they're coming out of a crisis, basically? Uh, Maybe Mm -hmm. it's a bit of a poison chalice?
6: Oh, that's interesting, right? Kind of the way in which... (laughs) political parties have historically done that in canada right to our female leaders put them in place kim campbell and others um i don't think so you got to remember unifor is a big uh powerful uh, organization in canada the election is like any election you know as opposed to an appointment this was a membership-based uh and driven decision right it's all votes count and i think this reflects as i said the changing composition of the typical union member the way the union uh, movement has evolved over the last 20 years, and perhaps uniform signaling that's the space in which they will continue to advocate for.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Rafael Gomez.
6: You're welcome. Thank you so much.
1: Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And before we go to break, this just in, and uh, those of you who've been listening, we lost Brad Bradford in our conversation shortly before the end. Well, uh, Lauren O'Neill said he just uh, direct messaged him. The power went out at City Hall. Uh, (laughs) That was the reason. Wow. We've been having trouble with all kinds of basic services, so the power went out at City Hall, and uh, Brad, thanks for letting us know. Right now, we're taking a break, and when we come back, uh, the specter of privatization of our healthcare. One day, the health minister says yes. Today, she says no. We will talk all about that. And we'd like to hear from you. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740 when we come back.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to 1. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. Are you worried about privatization of our health care? Well, yesterday, Health Minister Sylvia Jones said that further privatization was one of the options for solving the crisis that she won't acknowledge as a crisis. Well, today she clarified that whatever happens, our single government payer system will remain in place. Are you reassured? Where does that leave us? The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Charlene Stewart, president of SEIU Healthcare, which represents 60,000 healthcare workers in the province, and Fran NDP, MPP for Nickel Belt and The Health Critic. Women, welcome. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, thank you, Libby. Hi, Fran. Um, so uh, she clarified just a couple of hours ago at Queen's Park, single payer system stays. Are you reassured, Charlene?
7: No, quite frankly, I'm not. Um, that announcement yesterday, as I said, it was like uh, unfathomable that Premier Ford would kick open the doors to further privatization of our healthcare system after what we experienced in the last two years, what Ontario was exposed to. We saw the grave failures that the for-profit nursing homes under that model, uh, the results that came out of that, and are still having bad, uh, bad results. Bad, you know, the care in there, the shortage of staff. So it really did surprise me yesterday and today. What she's saying is exactly replicating the
1: model that we see in long-term care and home care. Uh well. Let me ask you this, uh, France. We we have a lot of privatized medicine, which is, uh, it, it's a private supplier. Uh, all family doctors are private small businesses, and there are all kinds of clinic services. I mean, everything from imaging and testing that are also done by private companies.
8: You're absolutely right, Libby. Ontario is the province where the delivery of publicly funded health care has been the most privatized. Uh, we have hundreds of millions of dollars that benefit wealthy shareholders at the expense of sick people. You will remember when Mike Harris was there, privatized home care, privatized long-term care, home care was going to do things better, faster, cheaper. If it was going to be privatized in 2022, do you think that our home care system is better, faster, cheaper because we have privatized? Absolutely not.
1: Well, I'm not. I'm. I've. I've uh, written about this before. Not thrilled with the government system either. To be, uh, to be <laughs> quite frank, I'm not sure. Actually, you know, when it comes to home care, I. I you can't uh, compare the prices. But uh, actually, when I've dealt with private home care companies, they've been pretty good. Uh, but, <laughs> but I. I Grass, no, as no, we you're see. absolutely right. If you have the money to pay, <laughs> no, it was paid um, by it. It was paid paid by the government, some of it, and delivered by a private company. Mm-hmm.
8: Uh, the idea is really, like Charlene just said, we just came out of a pandemic. Would you say that the people living in a long-term care home managed by the private sector were doing better or worse than the uh, We
1: all know the answer to that.
8: Yeah, they all know the great majority of people who died, died horrible deaths of, of starvation, covers in feces, and not being washed, um, None of that happened in the not-for-profit. It happened in the for-profit homes. And uh, this is what they are looking. This is what they are looking at. I just attended the scrum with the minister again, and it is clear they have been working on this for some time. They already have big investors who are willing to make the investment to build a new surgical suite that would allow um, a whole bunch of surgeries to be done faster and make hundreds of millions of dollars for friends of the conservatives who will invest in those clinics and make hundreds of millions of dollars off of the back of sick people and people needing surgery.
1: Uh, I mean, they already do things like colonoscopies, uh, mammograms, all those things, and it does take pressure off hospitals. Uh, Do you think that care is is, uh, substandard? Uh, Not necessarily the care, uh, but research after research
8: will show you that they are called independent health facilities. All of the independent health facilities in Ontario are private for profit except for one. And all of the independent health facilities always have a fee. So if you go for your colonoscopy to screen for cancer screening, yay, I encourage you to do this. You go in the hospital, it's absolutely free. You go in a, in a private clinic and then they'll say, I think you should talk to the nutritionist before coming. She sits right here. She's at one hundred seventy dollars an hour. I think you should uh, talk to. I think you should use this lens rather than that lens for uh, your cataract surgery. And that lens happens to be four hundred dollars. Oh, the upselling, yeah. The same ophthalmologist, the same patient, the same surgery in a hospital is free. You put it in 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 a private clinic. There is always always a fee and you have this power imbalance. How do you tell a specialist who's about to gain you your sight back that you don't want to spend four hundred dollars. You don't have four hundred dollars for that for, for that fancy lens he wants to put in, um, it's really difficult to do. So um it's a barriers to care to a lot of people who don't have four hundred bucks and sometimes they're six hundred and eight hundred bucks. Uh
1: now i I want to get to this business about the nursing agencies, and again, you know i 've said on the i don't understand why the government doesn 't uh you know repeal one twenty four because there 's no way that a one percent uh, increase is going to be what they can get away with but that aside, so they're paying a lot of money for agencies, but Even if Bill 124 was repealed tomorrow, that would not ease the shortage of nurses in the short term. Am I uh, wrong about that, Charlene?
7: You know, and Libby, listening to you and France go back and forth, I mean, it's about priorities and investing in our own people, in our own province, putting the money right directly into care and wages, to your point. Agencies is another good example, you know, <laughs> the workers aren't really getting a whole lot more money in the agencies, once the agencies take their profits off, they're barely making the same, or much more than what they make working at the hospital. So, what the Premier and the Health Minister has to do is prior, prioritize and, and make this top of mind, investing in their own people, the, the Premier Ford says that all the time, let's invest in Ontario, well let's do that, let's invest in our own people. This privatization, kicking it, like you said, just cracking open the door a little bit, you know, the privatization, colonoscopies, cataracts, that's just the beginning. You People are going to have to start to pay for dignified care. Look at it in long-term care already. If you want to have an extra bath a week, if you want to have more than what, you, you don't have to hide the briefs that your family will get briefs. You have to pay for that. We have to pay for dignified care. And I don't think that's what we want in Canada. Take the States, for example. Pretty soon, you start to pay a little bit. You end up paying more, and you're getting less for it. Okay, I mean, but, to but be very cautious about that.
1: To the nursing question, what I'm asking is, if it was repealed tomorrow, they would probably still have to use agencies to at least some degree. Am I wrong? It would it would turn the page, Libby. I agree you, with that totally. You, you have hundreds and thousands of
8: nurses leaving the profession every month. From May to June, we lost. 5,400 healthcare workers, um, and and every month is is getting worse. Uh, they are discouraged. They just you know like healthcare takes place between two human beings, between a healthcare professional and a patient. Both of them need to be respected in order to have quality care. Right now, the nurses come on the front of Queens Park. Uh, write emails and tell them, we feel disrespected. The pandemic was hard. There were directives that cover nurses and hospital workers that says we can reschedule you anywhere we want, anytime we want. They would come in for their shift and say, no, you're going to a long-term care home today. Come in for their shift in dialysis and be told, no, you're going to screen for uh, COVID-19 today. That was really hard, plus dealing with the pandemic was hard, and then they have this Bill 124 on top of it. They feel disrespected. Remember, good quality care, you respect the caregiver, you respect the patient, you get quality care. No,
1: I, I, I agree with you on all of that, but what I'm saying is, uh, and and I agree that it's a lot of money to spend on agencies, but that even if it was repealed tomorrow, that's, that's not going to solve it overnight, right? No, but it, Libby, it, it'll
7: make an absolute immediate difference. Right now, the healthcare workers are hearing, yes, I'm not worth it. They capped my wages at 1%. Now, they're going to pull more money out of the public purse to pay private people to do the work. Private agencies, why not show them? The respect and dignity that they're desperately seeking. That's why they're walking out the doors. Why wouldn't the premier stand up today and say, I'm repealing Bill 124. Give these people a, a lifeline, some hope that maybe the premier and the minister of health really sees them. But day after day, repeal or place Bill 124. Let's cap them. Let's not address the staffing shortages. Let's not look at incentives to bring back retired nurses. If they reversed all of that and showed that they are at least starting to have an immediate plan, I guarantee you, because the frontline workers are telling me that if they saw any signs of uh, respect and a plan to deal with them, they would be back. Yes, like it's not going to happen overnight, but I guarantee you today is just another slap on the face for those workers. that let's privatize your work instead of deal with your work and make it dignified, quality care and pay you wages and full time jobs and benefits.
1: Okay, let's take a call from Ron in Guelph. Hi, Ron.
5: Hi, Libby. Thanks for taking my call at the last minute. So we already have some privatized stuff because Life Labs in our area is privatized. Yep, um, labs,
1: lots of labs.
5: And it works very well. Um, um, I had surgery recently for hernia, and some people asked me, well, didn't you go to the shoulder ice? And I said, well, the surgery of the shoulder is covered on OHIP, but the, um, you have to stay in the clinic for three days. And it probably would have been a better choice because I had complications after my hernia surgery, and I ended up back in emergency three nights in a row. Sorry to hear that. That was every night.
1: Um, sorry to hear that you went through that. You're okay now? Well, yeah, it's just, and I'm not blaming the nurse. It's a tough job, but I ended up
5: with some complications. I had to put a catheter in. The nurse didn't install it properly. I ended up with more pain and infections and whatnot. So. These would have all been dealt with had I stayed at the shoulder. But again, it costs more to go to the shoulder. It's a private clinic. But I'm, I'm not against um, some privatization if they can make it efficiently and still people can still get uh, paid by
1: OHIP. I don't see a problem. Okay. Thanks for your call. Anybody have a response to uh, Ron in Guelph?
8: Absolutely, absolutely. This is by design, uh, Libby. That Ron is now convinced that our publicly deliver is not able to provide quality care. We had five years of zero base budget increase for a hospital. Since then, they've always been below cost of living increases. If you starve the public system, that it cannot provide you're, you know, like we have some expectation as to what quality care looks like, then any alternative looks good. And private, privatizing, oh, it looks good. Look, there's quality here. There's quality if you have money. But something that defines us as Canadian is that Medicare care is based on needs, not on ability to pay. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're tall or short or old or young. You get care based on needs, not on ability to pay. This is something that every Canadian is proud of. But if you let our public system run down enough, then people will say, hey, I'll pay for quality care when they have the money to pay. And for the rich, it will be a beautiful thing. For the rest of Ontarians, uh, the studies after studies are there. Uh, you can read the uh, BC... Uh, Supreme Court on, on Dr. Day, who wanted to uh, uh, have a private yeah, and- clinic, and the rest of the people pay with longer wait time. The staff goes from the public sector to the private sector, and it's just um, the private sector becomes with really poor quality care, and if you can afford to pay, you will get great care. Not everybody can. The number one reason of personal bankruptcy in the U.S. is sickness.
1: Uh, we we understand that, and I think uh, we also have a Canada Health Act, and if there's two-tier care, uh, the province won't get money from the federal government. Uh, we only have a minute left. Uh, Charlene, uh, 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 France uh, alluded to agreements in place about private surgical centers. What can you tell us about that in uh, less than a minute, please? Well, I
7: mean, in less than a minute, I think the announcement today or, and yesterday really did take some people back. It wasn't mentioned during the election platform. So what I'd like to see, and I'm sure the people of Ontario, is what is it? Transparency is, I, I think maybe some of this is an indication why he won't deal with the crisis right before him and repeal Bill 124. So he's got to be transparent.
1: What are your plans? Okay, I think that is a good note to wrap things up on. Doug Ford, Sylvia Jones, what are your plans? Thank you so much, Fran Chalina and Charlene Stewart. Pleasure talking pleasure. to you, Libby, and nice to talk to you, Charlene. Okay. You too, take care. Take care, all of you. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow. And yeah, I'd like to hear your stories. What do you think about this? Are you worried that this is the kind of thin edge of the wedge? On the other hand, you know, uh, not keeping up with inflation, but the actual size of the health care budget. It's record. It's, It's not like it's less than it was before, but it's not keeping up with inflation. Lots to talk about tomorrow. And that is all the time we have for today.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads.